You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. To all of us, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Amazing. So I think that obviously the first kind of thing that someone will notice when they look at your book is uh, the 4,000 weeks. Uh, so this kind of details uh, kind of the idea that on average, we have roughly about 4,000 weeks to live. That's about, you know, 80 years or so. Um, you know, I... I assume you picked a, a round number for simplicity's sake. Yes, no, very much so. I think, you know, uh, in the West, certainly in the UK, you can hope for a few more than 4,000, but not very many more, really. Yeah. Right, right, of course. And it's also, you know, as you talk about in this, that's just an average. There's some people that will be more, there's some people that will be less. Absolutely, totally. Um, so, but it's a really good framework to think about. So I was thinking about it from my, from my own perspective, and I'm 26 years old, uh, so... If you run the maths, I've used up about 1,400 of, of my weeks. My parents are six, uh, around about 60. I hope they don't, don't mind me saying that. So they've used up just over about 3,000. Uh, my granddad is 86, so he's on borrowed time, I suppose you could say. <laughs> Although ultimately we all are, but yes, we I agree. Are. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I just uh, kind of, um, when I first picked up your book, because I, I mean, I'm the first to say over the years I've read massive amounts of, of time management books from yeah, I kind of mentioned to you I've sat opposite David Allen, Laura Vandekam. Um, but your book in particular, it kind of what differentiates your books to the others is that this book, I feel, kind of give me a sense of clarity and also a bit of urgency. Um, so I would love to know kind of was that something that you aimed to do specifically when you were writing the book? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the prob the trouble with answering questions like that is always just that, like, what I really aimed to do was kind of write the book that I needed with the advice that I needed to hear. You know, it's all an act of self-therapy in the end anyway. And it, I definitely am someone who experiences writing as like, well, I've just got to figure out what it's supposed to be. So it's not like I even have much choice in the matter. It's like there's something that I'm trying to clarify. And when I've done it as well as I can you have to see what you've got in a way but I think um yeah I mean what what your question really makes me think of is that I think there is a way of misinterpreting the message here which is probably encouraged by the choice of the title for the book which is that because life is short and finite and because we don't usually go around paying enough attention to that that if you were to pay proper attention to that you would then be sort of in this really hyper state where you were trying to spend every single hour of every day as in an ex as an extraordinary way as possible um doing living a sort of really unusual life or visiting all sorts of exotic places to whatever which is actually a very high, high stress kind of way to think about it isn't it it's like you know i was sort of relaxed and now you've reminded me of this thing so i'm gonna go through life with a like a fire in my uh you know my seat of my pants on fire or something 
And I hope that what comes from um, the book itself, as opposed to the title, is actually that if you really get into the point I hope I'm trying to make, it does lend a certain urgency to life, but it's almost like a relaxed urgency if that isn't right. a, a contradiction in terms. It's almost like a question of stepping into reality and facing the facts, but but precisely because one of those facts is that there will always be far more to do than we'll have time for, um, that we can't control life in the way that we wish we could, precisely because of all that, you can sort of relax into that situation. You don't have to keep struggling to like get the most out of life. Mm -hmm. And you might discover the truth, as I think many people do, that actually lots of the most fulfilling bits of life in the end are things they didn't plan for, or they are things that um, don't look very remarkable from the outside. Um, and you can sort of let all that happen and have a more fulfilling life, but not because you like scrunched up your forehead muscles or whatever to really try to make it make it as fulfilling as possible. Right. And you raise a very good point there because the amount of people that I've spoke to that have told me, you know, I, I went to Rome and I said, oh, amazing. What was kind of the best part for you? And no one ever says the, the Trevi fountain. They would say, oh, I was, it was, you know, I was just sitting there having a great meal and I saw this incredible sunrise or I got to speak to the culture. Right. It was the part that you wasn't expecting. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is such a, sorry, yeah. No, I think this is such a good point because, you know, if you look, and I say this in the book, but like if you think about anything that you have in your life that you really value, your if you love your career or things you do on the side of your career or if you're in a happy relationship or you've got really good friends, like I guarantee you none of those things, if you trace them back to how they started, they won't have started because you made a specific plan and then you carried it out and it went exactly as you thought it would and it all worked out. It'll be some sequence of events over which you didn't have uh, full control or even in some cases any control at all. Right, right. Um, I would kind of love to talk to you because I guess reading your book, the kind of concept of time was one that um, I think kind of challenged my notion of it because uh, particularly in the book, you kind of give quite a few uh, pre-industrial examples yeah. and reading, for instance, you write about um, farmers and it kind of makes me think, you know, in this modern world, and I'm even guilty of this myself where I've you know, you, you kind of even talked about yourself where you blocked out 15 minute blocks throughout your entire day yeah. and, and you've done this and I'm guilty of it. But I'm kind of wor uh, wondering where this kind of fascination, this obsession with being tied to the clock mm -hmm. has kind of come from? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think I slightly avoid coming down with a very clear answer in the book. I, I'm trying to show that the way we think about time today is, is somewhat new. I think it's very extreme these days, but it's sort of a couple of centuries old, maybe three centuries old in a, in a, in a more general sense. Um, but of course, there have been different, it's all very kind of varied, right? So you get cultures which develop certain modern looking ideas of time earlier than others and all the rest of it. I think the fundamental thing that's worth talking about there really is just this, this notion that time is a thing that is separate from you and that you have to like keep up with it or make the most of it or um, win a fight with it. We have all these different ways of thinking about our existence in time. 
And, you know, even just that very notion of like quantifying your time and measuring how many hours you spend on one thing or another thing, it implies that an even deeper level, this notion that time is a resource that you're going to try to make the best use of. And I sort of want to try, I mean, that idea is incredibly useful and I'm not saying that we should sort of get rid of it at all, but I think that ultimately at the deepest level, time isn't like that. So we're always going to run into trouble if we treat it as a resource to be used. We'll get some useful things out of it, but we'll also run up against the problem that it isn't ultimately like that. So, you know, I think there's good reason to believe that if you'd been a medieval peasant, um, uh, it's the example I give in the book, right? You, you wouldn't have, life was absolutely terrible for those people in, in a million different ways, but you wouldn't have had this sense of time related stress because you wouldn't have even thought of time as some thing that was hounding you or that you had to measure up to or anything like that. It would just have been like you were time, time just unfolded in your being, um, you milked the cows when it was time to milk the cows and you harvested the crops when it was time to harvest the crops. Um, you couldn't like get an edge on that. You can't like batch process things where, like, like a lot of productivity gurus would have you do if, if they're just given in nature in that way. So a lot of this had to do with people being much more closely yoked to the rhythms of the earth. And of course, there's lots of good things about the fact that we are not also yoked to the rhythms of the earth anymore. But I think one of the downsides is it leads us to think that time is just this thing that we can try to sort of control a portion chunks of get more value out of. And it, and it keeps kind of shocking us in some level to remember that, that there's only a, li there's a limit to how, how useful that, that angle uh, is because we're always trying to, assert control over time but then when you really think about it like what is time where is it like you can't actually control it so all our efforts to kind of manage and control and master our time are eventually going to run into this stressful experience that like it's not the kind of thing that can be mastered or controlled or managed in, the, in that way right and, and a perfect uh example i think of people trying to fight or control time which inevitably leads to unpleasant psychological consequences i believe is the biohacking kind of industry mm -hmm. and uh, uh just a book that i was reading um quite recently was was uh dave asprey's superhuman and uh, i'm not sure if you've ever seen it but it's uh, I know who he is. I haven't read yeah. Superhuman, but I know the bulletproof stuff in general and putting butter in your coffee and all That's that. That's it, yeah. And, and the, on the book, it says, the bulletproof plan to age backwards and maybe even live forever. So I think that this kind of idea that, you know, this notion that maybe you can even mm -hmm. have an infinite lifespan, to me, is kind of similar to what you're talking about. It's a denial that we are, we have a finite existence on the earth. And that is a conscious movement that says we can try to fight against it. And what I, it's, and I was thinking about that whole movement and it's kind of, to me, it, it seems like a very stressful life being in that kind of mindset about I have to do this and I have to do this and I need to go and get my stem cell therapy and yeah. I need to go and be embarrassed about gray hairs and I need to do this. And to me, that kind of seems like just one example 
of an industry that is kind of not in congruence with, as yeah. you said, kind of the flow of time. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I, I don't know that book specifically, so I don't want anything I say to be a, a personal attack on Dave Asprey. <laughs> I, I will be interested to read that book. Um, but I do think that so there's sort of two parts to this. I don't think anything I'm saying means that like it's not going to be theoretically possible to do things to the human body that massively extend lifespan. And if somebody told me there was a simple and healthy way to live another 100 flourishing years tomorrow, I think I would I would take that, right? So so I don't think any of this means like I'm not one of these people who thinks that like it goes against God to try to do this. So it's never going to it's never going to succeed. But I think that the, the, the level on which I want to criticize it is is the emotional investment in that, right? So so if you're buying those books and reading those things and you're and you're like hoping to to have that for yourself, it's a very strange psychological situation to be in given the state of the science, which is that we don't know clearly what is going to happen in each individual person's case, whether these things work or not. Because you're never going to find that out until like you are 120 and it worked, you know, or you are living to whatever. In the meantime, you're, yeah, you're putting all your emotional investment in this idea that you don't want your time to run out. And, and one of the things I try to go into in the book, I guess, is how that attitude for various different reasons sort of systematically causes you to miss out on your actual life in the present because you're so concerned to like transcend your limitations that um, given that you are limited right now, limited time, limited capacities, limited energy, all the rest of it, you, like that means that like now is not the right place to be. The future is the right place to be. The time when you get all this stuff together and it and it cashes out in a longer life or whatever, it has this effect of like turning the whole of life into this struggle to get somewhere else which we do in lots of other ways, right? Not only the biohackers, I think just productivity culture when it's taken to extremes becomes this like, certainly this was my experience for years when I was really deep into that stuff, right? It's like soon, next week, next year, I'm gonna be super optimized and mega efficient and I'm gonna be able to do everything that I feel I need to do. And in all, all these cases, we sort of, you set your sights on transcending your limitations. You miss out on the possibility of living to the max within your actual limitations now and you also i think sort of end up making bad decisions about how to use your time right because if like if if i'm not going to i mean you know there's a balance to be struck here but if if for example one of the ways you thought you should um you could extend your life would be uh by giving up certain um pleasures to do with the food you're eating then like it could be right to do it, but there's a trade-off there. And maybe this present moment pleasure of eating something delicious is actually um, worth the balance. There's some quote from, uh, I think it was Kingsley Amos, the author who said that um, uh, no, something like no sensual pleasure, or he was talking about smoking, I think, which we don't, which I don't hold with, but you know what I mean? It, alcohol, meat eating, whatever. No, no worldly pleasure is worth giving up for the sake of two more years in a, nursing home in Western Supermare is this, <laughs> is this famous quotation. And, um, and it's like, you know, you don't have to take that viewpoint, but there is a trade-off. And if you're living entirely to become Superman in the future, 
you are on some level in t- by definition missing out on life now i guess right um one of the the i guess big takeaways from this book for me anyway was that it's quite easy to get into a cycle of not deciding what to do with your life to not making choices to uh to becoming to not seeing your own uh uh your own limits to seeing the limits in in others to thinking you know if i do this and then i do this and i do this you know, if i have all these kind of mini careers and i don't actually have to decide to kind of go in on one yeah. and to me I, I kind of do think that 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 is another form of this where it kind of says well if i i'm going to live forever then i or if i can add another you know 100 years then i don't have to kind of yeah it, it's kind of an avoidance of of making a decisions but i would love to kind of ask you about this because this was something that i was thinking about and it's really caught my eye in the book where you say that often we think that, and I'm paraphrasing here, please, please forgive me, but you kind of talk about that. We often think that, you know, once we make a decision about a career or a partner or a holiday, that we may think that this was the wrong decision. But often when we're stuck in that set, that state of uncertainty, when we're not consciously choosing, mm-hmm. often they can be the worst periods to be stuck in. Um, yeah. So I kind of wonder if you could kind of elaborate on that because that was particularly pertinent for myself. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, um, it's just this point that uh, one of the ways we're always doing things, basically, this is my sort of big theory, I suppose. We're always doing things to try to maintain the feeling of being in control of our time at the cost of living the most fulfilling and interesting and accomplished lives. We, we, we'd, we'd rather choose... Um, the feeling of being in control. And there is no better way of feeling in control in many contexts than to, than to not act, than to refrain, than to, than to withhold from action. So like, you know, if you have this idea that one day you're going to write an amazing novel and it's going to be fantastic and everyone's going to, it's going to be critically acclaimed, the best way to hold on to that fantasy is never to begin it in the first place. Because once you begin it, by definition, anything you bring into the real world is imperfect. It's harder than you expect or doesn't go exactly as you plan. People don't respond in the way that you necessarily wanted to. So you actually trade really doing it in an imperfect and uh, sometimes uncomfortable way for this fantasy of, of not doing it. And I think commitment phobia in relationships, which I have plenty of experience in my earlier adulthood, is 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 totally part of the same thing. It's like you think about how you, you you don't know for sure that someone is the right person or you don't like the idea of the ups and downs of being in a long-term relationship or of feeling claustrophobic or something like that. So you tell yourself that you're gonna like not do that yet. You're gonna, you're gonna keep your options open. Now that can be the right decision for somebody. I'm not like recommending everyone gets married at 18 or something, but, but, you are, but what I'm trying to show in the book is that like that is a choice too. That is a choice to use up some of your finite time in uh, a different way, which, you know, for some people might be a good way. But after a while, you might as well take the other option and actually commit to something. And, yeah, you're right. There's all this research and I think just personal experience as well that shows that because people love this feeling of being in control by not acting, they think that if they do commit to some course of action, they'll feel constrained and they'll be regretful because it might be the wrong one or they'll they'll wish that they'd 
chosen something different. But that's not what happens. If you can make a more a relatively irreversible decision, if you can burn your bridges a bit and like shut down options, what you find again and again is that people are kind of happy with that because they're they're no longer haunted by the um, uh, the the thought of whether they should take a different action, whether they should stop and go in a different way. I mean, of course, like people get married and then get divorced. So it's not like these are kind of literally irreversible decisions, but there is this sense of like, you know, even take a smaller example, like once you've raised some issue that you needed to raise with a family member or a friend or something like you can't unsay it once you've, um, so you're already in that stream of time at that point, because you've made that you, there's no going back from that, from that thing. Um, I can I say absolutely like parenthood is the most amazing example of this, right? Because right up until the moment of becoming a parent, I don't think I could have given a very decisive answer to the question of whether I sort of need, really wanted to do that in my life. But then the environment is completely changed by the arrival of the kid. So it's like, great. I don't have to, I never have to worry for the rest of my life about whether I should become a parent because it's done. <laughs> so as it happens, it's incredibly rewarding, but you know, regardless of that, it's like it, the alternatives are off the table and there's something very um, relaxing and empowering about that. So, you know, I always, I think a great piece of advice for dealing with procrastination and all sorts of like just sense of being in a rut or anything like that is to like literally look for decisions that you could take. They don't have to be huge ones. I'm not saying like leave your job if you're dissatisfied in it, but just like anything that gets you a little bit further down a path where you're closing off options has this kind of motivating effect further into the, into the future. Right. Cause it's more in tune with reality, right? Which is that you are always closing off options anyway. It's just a question of whether you're doing it consciously or, or unconsciously yeah and, and i love that and i think that this kind of brings me on to one thing that i really wanted to ask you we kind of talked about there that kind of having a child in some ways that is a form of a constraint uh that kind of constrains you by obviously now you have to take care of this child and whilst <laughs> yeah. you know what sure i do yeah yeah <laughs> and whilst you're doing that there's other things that you can't be doing by by definition. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, I'd kind of like to branch this idea out to you, where I believe that having constraints in your life is actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. But kind of, I don't think that's quite a popular idea. Yeah. But the reason that I was thinking about this was, and I would say the closest uh, that I've ever come in my own life to having an addiction was to uh, playing Call of Duty back when I was a, a teenager. And one of the things that I found just incredibly seductive about this was that it had these very bright lines in the game. Um, right. You kind of, you knew exactly, I need to do this and I need to do this to progress and then because I have a, don't do this, I know I can't do this. And I found that to be so utterly uh, just kind of compelling um, oh, wow. And I, I like to think to myself that kind of in my own life, kind of when I give myself those bright lines, I say to myself, you know what, on a Saturday, you're not going to reply to any emails. Yeah. When I tell myself, okay, I'm going to take this day off or this day off, or I put these rules in place for myself, that my life becomes better. But yeah. people tend to think the opposite. So I wonder yeah. if you kind of relate to that point. In, in oh, I, I totally do. Yeah. I mean, as ever, I want to phrase it in a very slightly different way, which is sure. to say, 
it's not about it's not quite giving living an unconstrained life or a constrained one it's actually just more about consciously inviting and choosing specific constraints which is good versus the situation we're in anyway which is which is constrained right so we are what's a good way of describing this i mean like we are constrained by reality whether we like it or not so to pick one example that i sometimes get into trouble about like there's a bit in the book where i'm slightly sort of critical of the idea of being a digital nomad right this idea that that um the the purest freedom in life the highest lifestyle would be to just be able to go anywhere you wanted whenever you wanted and and run your business from wherever you liked and and, and actually you know plenty of people who've done this uh maybe it's an important life experience to go through but but plenty of people who've done this will say that actually a, a problem of it is you get really lonely because your your closest friends are digital nomads on the other side of the world or you don't know anybody in the place you're staying and you just got there three weeks ago or you don't speak the language so in that situation a person living a supposedly unconstrained life is actually really constrained right they're constrained by being alien to that culture or they're constrained by the distance between them and the people they'd like to be hanging out with it's not that they're not constrained by the sort of circumstances of reality it's that they are it, it it's that that they pursued a feeling of not being constrained and then get constraints they don't really bargain for so whereas when i think you talk about rules about when to answer th things or taking a day a week as a, as a day of rest and all these things or um having kids if you do it in a sort of in any in any kind of a planned or conscious way um you're just like choosing which problems to have, as it were, right? You're choosing which constraints to, are going to bind you because being unbound by any constraints is not is not an option. Something's going to constrain you. It's just going to be something you didn't want, like loneliness or, uh, you know, uh, any number of other things. So, uh, I th I th and I th so I think what you're doing in those moments, the reason I think that's so helpful and healthy to choose constraints is because you're acknowledging something that's already sort of non-negotiably true about being a human which is that you'll be constrained and then you're using what power you have in the world to choose the ones that are healthy and good for you and for the things you're interested in 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 doing if you think secretly like or not secretly like lots of people in the world seem to that, that a non-constrained life is possible then you're going to continually end up choosing bad constraints in reality, because you're going to be like, I don't have to be constrained. And then the constraints will just like pop up and, and frustrate your uh, actions. So, you know, I think it's, 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 yeah, it's that same old idea that like, you know, you're going to be following somebody's agenda. It's just a question of whether you consciously participate in that or not. You're going to be limited as a human. And the superpower is to see that truth and then exert some influence over which limitations you 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 go for rather than chasing this fantasy of uh of none of them yeah i think uh, an excellent point and i think that that point about that you raised in the book about the digital nomad uh when i read that i remember um thinking back to uh a girl that i knew from school and 
her entire life she'd always wanted to become um, a medical doctor. And uh, she kind of went through university, studied medicine to do, uh, worked as a junior doctor. And by the kind of end of the second year of training, she was kind of fed up of it and said, you know, I, I, I kind of want to go and try another life. Yeah. A responsibility kind of free life. So yeah. she uh, trained as an a-hostess. And I think she kind of had this idea of, you know, sitting carefree in Dubai on a beach and mm -hmm. uh, you know in Bali and all these things. And she did it for six months and, and come back. And I remember a conversation I had with her. Because I, I, he would think this sounds idyllic. And yeah. she said, Michelle, she said it was the most miserable I've ever been. And uh, I said yeah. to her, I said, well, you know, what was so bad? But she said, honestly, she said, I was exhausted in all these different time zones. You only get one or two different days in, in each yeah. places. Uh, you know, the places that I, I thought I wanted to go and see, I was rushed all the time there. Yeah. But I do also think that we're so chronically aware of all these amazing places in the world that it becomes so, particularly with social media and with TikTok, that we're far more aware of these things than, for instance, as you mentioned, but they, you know, back in the days when you just had to go and catch the local yeah. cockfight after yeah. ten yeah. counts. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I think this is a whole other piece of it. It's like there are all these different phases. So go back far enough, people probably believe all believed in an afterlife anyway, which means it's less stressful to try to get all the experiences you can out of this life because you're going to live forever or they believed in cyclical ideas about history so it was all going to come back again and back again forever then even just like fast forward centuries to just like 50 40 30 years ago it's a different situation but there isn't the level of digital information connectivity that we have today that sort of number one is exposing you to all of these other um things you could be doing, places you could be going, lives you could be living, people you could be dating, whatever. But with algorithmic, sort of algorithmically organized social media, it's, it's finding the specific ones that you're going to be wanting to do, right? So, so to, to exist in these digital spaces today is to just be constantly bombarded with much more stuff than you could ever make time for or have the ability to do and to be especially shown all the ones that are most perfectly tuned to your interests and obsessions and talents and passions. So it's like, it's a nightmare because I mean, it's very helpful from the point of view of consumer capitalism, I suppose, but it, but it, it, if you think that you're going to get your arms around it all, if you think that the main thing, if you think that what would qualify as a fulfilling life is that you got to the end of your life and you'd like done all those things then yeah it's going to be a recipe for um despair and disappointment and anxiety so i think one of the things i'm trying to do always in this book and in other stuff i do is is to really just sort of it, it's kind of a backwards way of getting to fulfillment in a way because it's like it's kind of like saying look like this thing you're trying to do that feels so difficult to you which namely like get your arms around it all, get on top of it all. I'm, I'm going to try and show you that it's even more difficult than you think, right? That it's like, it's such a non-starter. It's so impossible that maybe if I can make it clear how impossible it is, you'll give up doing it. 
and focus instead on just choosing a few of those experiences, having one of those a million potential relationships, you know, and actually like come into life as it really is. So, you know, some, some people writing books and advicey book type books are trying to sort of um, lift people's spirits. I always feel like I'm trying to disappoint them so much that they like come around the other end and it's like, okay, I'm going to give that up because it is just so impossible. I can do this instead and actually be happier and accomplish more that way. I, I totally, totally agree. And, and kind of, I, you know, to, to pay testament to your book, I think that it really does, or it really did for me anyway, kind of um, uh, illuminated a, a perspective change. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about uh, was kind of during uh, the very first lockdown that I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, many people kind of thought that it was going to be this kind of, terrible uh, thing kind of all the freedoms have taken away but some people i speak to today and i'm I'm certainly not uh minimizing the experience of people that had terrible experiences that lost loved ones Mm. uh but i certainly would kind of like to illuminate um this and some friends i have that like myself like the people that listen to this show type a personalities very very driven that kind of want to maximize And they told me that during lockdown, they kind of had, they were kind of thrust into another mode of being. You know, one one friend, uh, he described it to me as he said that he become obsessed with this idea, uh, you know, real real high performance. He said, he said, I become obsessed with this idea since then of, uh, I believe the Italians call it dolce far niente, the sweetness of doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and, uh, kind of another friend told me, he said that, similar to kind of what you're describing, that they felt more uh, in tune with the sense of time, which I, I know sounds sort of kind of wishy-washy, but I hear time and time again, when people slowed down, they kind of felt more connected with themselves, yeah, more connected with, uh, you know, the, the kind of world around them. They had conversations with their families yeah. that kind of that they never had before. Yeah. Um, so, so I kind of just like the, to talk to you about this and, in the book, you talk about the kind of limits of, uh, I believe you call it fin- finitude. My pronunciation is yeah, not yeah, too good. Sure, I, finitude. I don't finitude. Know. Yeah, not too, too good at pronouncing it. But kind of, there does seem to be an effect that when we embrace that, that you kind of do reach a kind of, uh, you would kind of do tune more into, I guess, perhaps the frequency of time that you've kind of talked about. Uh, but is that kind of something that you were kind of shooting for with? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's all just about coming back to our real situation. And so, yeah, absolutely. The experience of COVID, the disease for a lot of people has been absolutely awful. The experience of lockdown, like my, there's lots of strong arguments made against the degree to which many countries locked down and the ways that lockdown has had its victims. Um, but one thing that all of these things do for some people in a pleasant way and other people in a very distressing way is like push reality into their faces. And if you're somebody who's been sort of chasing this future state of being able to do everything or being able to like be sort of so efficient that you can move at the speed of light and handle everything that's thrown at you, if you're completely forced like by the law (laughs) to 
to stop and stay home and not go to the office and and uh, and all and all the rest of it, then there's totally something kind of edifying about that, even in the midst of all this of all this uh, awfulness, because you're sort of deprived of this um, carrot that you're that you're chasing, and you have to sort of suddenly come back to like where you are and say, like, what can I do here and now? And um, on the other hand, sort of at the same time, in the opposite direction, there's this sense of like, well, if all these assumptions are going to be thrown up in the air, like, I can't assume anymore that I get to go to my place of work tomorrow. I can't assume, like, apparently we live in now in a, I mean, we always did, I would argue, but we, we see now that we live in this kind of radically uncertain world where you can't guarantee what the world is going to look like a week from now. That seems like a good argument for um, just doing the thing that you've been putting off doing, right? I mean, that seems like quite a good argument for saying like, I mean, I shouldn't bank on uh, doing that cool thing I want to do in 10 years when I'm fully qualified or in 40 years when I'm retired or something like this, because, um, you know, we might all be living in a terrible dystopia. Uh, by then, kind of, uh, you know, foraging for scraps of food in a in a in a in a nuclear wasteland. I mean, I'm joking, but the point is, it's like it it takes away that dependability of the future, which I think is actually quite useful because it brings you back to like making the most of the present. Right, and I think that kind of that was actually one of the take home messages that I I had from Tim Ferriss's book when I I read it a number of years ago, which was that don't postpone the present don't delay yeah. living now for a holiday 11 months away or yeah. until after you qualify and i yeah. think that your book kind of uh it, it, in many similar ways kind of paints that mesh. i wonder could you talk about that about that maybe the cost of delaying living now for potentially a future which we're not even guaranteed yeah i mean well on some level i think you just said it and i think you know uh that part of four hour work week was always for me the bit that like completely struck home, you know, that idea of mini retirements and, uh, and not, uh, and not putting it all onto retirement. There's something very similar happens with people who tell themselves they're going to go off and work in a job they don't really want to do, but it pays really well for a decade or something, you know, go and be, go and work in high finance, even though you don't really want to do that. And then you're going to take the money and live the life you want. And of course, Firstly, you can't guarantee you'll get those that future. But secondly, you know, people people get accustomed to a lifestyle and then they can't bring themselves to to, to leave it. And so there's all about all of these things are arguments against putting off. I guess what I the argument I make in the book is that this this putting off into the future is sort of almost like a natural consequence of trying too hard to make the best use of time, because in a way, the very idea of use implies a future outcome right you're doing it for some reason and um and so even if you're enjoying your work now if you're fully invested in the notion that the reason you're doing it is the result then you are going to end up living in the future rather than in the present and to some extent that's fine and we wouldn't get anything good done in the world if we didn't have some aspect of that and i totally do i'm not i don't just sort of sit around all day staring at the flowers and 
doing nothing. I've got projects and try to get to get through them and, and, and complete them. But but it's really easy to overinvest in that. And our culture constantly encourages us to overinvest in that. So I think this is a case for two things. Partly it's a case for doing those cool things now, right? Not waiting till retirement if it's a kind of, um, if it's leisure, but also not waiting. I mean, probably something that is more of an issue to someone like, I don't know, your age, the age of the, what I imagine is the average age of someone listening to this is not so much setting a lot of store by what they're going to do in their 60s and 70s, but it might be more like um, waiting a few more years until you feel qualified to do something or until you have experience under your belt or until you've acquired enough capital to make some risk worth taking. And, you know, absolutely that can be a wise decision based on the specific circumstances, but it's incredibly tempting to rely on that because it's comforting, right? It, it enables you to stay in your comfort zone today because it's going to be later that you do the thing that you're really, that you really care about or that you really um, think is important. And I think that, yeah, when you see that that's going on and you see how it kind of takes meaning away from the present and puts it all into the future, that can be a good spur to be like, just, you know, I think ultimately the way time works is you just have to do some of the thing you want to be doing with your life today or this week um, and not be sort of waiting until you've got the right level of control over circumstances to to act because that level of control kind of never arrives. And, uh, you know, if there's anybody in their 20s listening to this thinking that by the time they're in their 40s, they would feel they knew what they were doing in their career. Uh, I've, I'm one data point to say that you never actually do feel like what you're, you know what you're doing. So there's no reason, no reason to wait. I love it. Um, I would love to ask you because you've kind of uh, been in, I guess, the self-help productivity space. You obviously wrote a column for The Guardian, sure have, trying yeah, all yeah. these these tactics out. Uh, what do you think is the worst piece of self-help advice that you can that comes to mind um that's interesting because a lot of self-help advice i've and certainly techniques i've come to think are not bad they're just very easy to misuse mm. so you know if you come at them thinking that they're going to like enable you to do everything or save your soul then they're going to go terribly wrong but that doesn't mean they're bad you know lots and lots of stuff that i might have mocked early on in my days writing the guardian column i think it's possible for them to be part of of life i suppose um i suppose th i'm trying to think of a specific piece of advice but i think that i'll get to it maybe but the 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 the, the area that I think is really bad advice is basically anything that sets you up and encourages you to like fight with yourself and um, sort of be aggressive towards your self to demand so much of yourself that you're basically fighting yourself. Um, because in my um, experience, all that does is like yourself fights back and you just end up like in a, in a, in a sort of resentful mess of uh, procrastination and non-productivity. So um, there's a certain kind of like, there's a certain kind of sort of tough 
self-help advice, which is just about like, you're not going to enjoy it. You've just got to do it. You've just got to make yourself do it. You've got to associate the rock. You've got to change it so that you associate massive pain. Is that Anthony Robbins? Probably. I don't know. You've got, he's got a lot of good advice as well hidden in there. But anyway, you've got to, got to associate massive pain with the outcomes that you don't want and massive pleasure with the outcomes that you do want. And you've got to sort of berate yourself constantly. Um, I'm trying to think if there's like a famous, if there's like a famous mantra that I can, that I can, uh, uh, attack here, but it's that's that feel. I'm sure you know what I mean, right? Mm. That that feel mm. of like, um, and, and anything as well. And this is related, you know, anything that is to do with total transformation starting tomorrow, you know, this idea that you're going to that you can have a complete fresh start and leave behind the whole person that you used to be in favor of somebody else, which is a completely logical idea because it's always the old you who is constructing this new you that you want to launch. So you you drag your old personality through your life, whether you like it or not. Um, all that kind of absolutism as well, I think is really, is really unhelpful. I don't know um, if that quite answered your question. Oh, absolutely. And kind of the talk, the sort of being in a fight with yourself. I, I see this all the time as well when I see on Instagram, and this was quite big back in the days where people would give the advice of just sleep fewer hours you know right. yeah and yeah. Uh, there's always more you can get more out if you sleep two hours less you can work two hours more yeah. and that seems to be quite a, a miserable miserable existence <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean you know i always want to say in this like there can be contexts where the trade-off to make would be less sleep i think so sure i mean but but it's this idea that it's going to get you to this place where um where like peace of mind reigns no, you're just going to be tired. Now, maybe it's going to be worth being tired at certain sort of fixed periods of your work life if you're launching something big or something like that, you know. But don't imagine that it's going to pay off in being like happy and relaxed and fulfilled. Uh, it's just going to ingrain the habit of, uh, you know, working too hard and shouting at yourself inside your head. I love it. I love it. Um, I'd love to kind of ask you, because uh, we've gone over so, so much today. We've kind of gone over embracing limitations, uh, kind of being mindful of, uh, you know, delaying life, procrastination as a control strategy, consciously making this, we've kind of covered so much today. Um, I'd love to kind of ask you just one topic, which really caught my, uh, really piqued my interest at kind of. Sure. Uh, at the, the end of the book, um, and that was your chapter on cosmic insignificance <laughs> therapy. And kind of again, your your book is a lovely antidote to the modern culture where it seems to be kind of the opposite to what we kind of see today in this kind of overly inflated sort of narcissistic uh, kind of era. So I'd love to if you could kind of share, talk a little bit about this idea of cosmic insignificance therapy. Yeah, this is just my sort of frivolous term for the idea that there's something really good, relaxing, but also empowering about really thinking about how um, little our lives matter in the cosmic scheme of things, right? How, how, what a tiny piece of the current humanity you are. And then also in temporal terms, like how tiny your life is going to be compared to entire history of the cosmos in each direction you know the, the history in the future um 
And obviously one place people go with this is to sort of nihilism and this idea like, well, why do anything if it can't, um, if, if I'm so small and tiny and insignificant, but I don't have a lot of patience with that, with that conclusion, because I think that, um, it, it, it's, um, it's a little arbitrary that we even define a meaningful life as it's got to somehow impact history for centuries to come, or it's got to change the lives of millions of people on the planet. And of course, we do live in this world now that especially celebrates fame and and celebrity in a sort of unique way. But there's no reason to believe that that's a particularly meaningful path to pursue. And so my idea in this section is sort of to say, and this is partly, you know, there are stoic exercises that touch on this as well. It's certainly not a brand new idea that like, often we're paralyzed by indecision or we hold back from making bold and risky moves in life because on some level we overestimate how much it matters to reality, what we do. And that the reminder that like, you know, nobody's going to care in 200 years time, half the decisions that I fret about, I don't care about in a week's time, you know? So, <laughs> so this, this is the reason to just do stuff and, and to lower the stakes of like to lower what's at stake when, when deciding and to be like, look, I don't know for sure that this move from one city to another or whatever is going to pay off. Of course I don't, but like, it doesn't really matter as much as I've maybe been thinking that it does. And then the other piece of this is that if you can drop a bit that notion that a truly, that a meaningful life has to be extraordinary and has to be sort of noteworthy to other people, that we all have to be Elon Musk or I don't know, Shakespeare. Um, first, I mean, I'm quoting here the philosopher Ido Landau who points out that like, firstly, this is crazy because the number of people who have the talent to become Shakespeare in any given generation is probably like one or two. And therefore um, you're just sort of setting yourself up to fail because however amazing you are, you're probably not quite that good at writing plays or whatever it might be. But secondly, just the experience that we have in life is not that things are only meaningful, that things only feel meaningful if they have that kind of effect. Sometimes it seems to be quite the opposite. You know, it is some very local, very domestic experience, or it is doing something that helped your community or doing something that, uh, you know, cooking nutritious meals for your kid. You know, these things really give you that feeling of like, I am actually doing the right thing here. It's like, I, uh, this is a good use of my time on the planet. Nobody's ever gonna know about them. I'm always struck in my own work even that like, you know, I love the fact that this book is selling more copies than I thought. And like that, that sort of, that sort of, you know, low level of fame that you get from being a author, which is not really fame, but it's like, I like, I'm, I've got a big enough ego to find that enjoyable. But easily the most sort of fulfilling bits of doing this book have been like individual emails from, from individual people about discussing this stuff or what it meant to them or whatever. And, and that's not a function of the numbers. That's not because I've got thousands of them or something. That's, that's just an example of the fact that what gives us meaning in life is very often these one-to-one -one connections or one relationship or location that you love to visit or something like that. So there's really no reason to hang the meaning of your life on, on like wowing the planet that might be your destiny.
but also might well not be and that's fine that's a, a fantastic message and i think it's a, a great uh reminder for people that think that you know to have an impact i need to win a nobel prize right maybe you just need to go and look after your, your elderly grandmother for an afternoon you know the, the, <laughs> right. the impact is still there so i love that message uh, we always just sign off with two quick fire questions sure um, i'd love to ask you so obviously so you wrote a fantastic book uh 4, weeks time management for mortals but i would love to ask you um and i'd be particularly interested in all kind of uh uh what, what you suggest or kind of what books uh, that you could recommend have really impacted your life that you can share with our audience? Well, I've been really into almost all the books written by a Jungian psychotherapist called James Hollis, who um, uh, I quote in the book, actually. Pretty much anything uh, he's ever written is, uh, is, is worth your time. Um, it's a very sort of he's a great writer and it's very humorous and down to earth but it's also really gets at this idea that a meaningful life is not necessarily happy most of the time that the experiences we really crave are experiences of like becoming who we are in some slightly mysterious way and that that can involve difficulties and and negative experiences and it's actually a lot means a lot more to us in the end than constantly chasing uh you know happiness per se. And then I've been really impacted by a lot of books that come broadly from a kind of Zen Buddhist um, uh, background. The, there's a book called Nothing Special by an American Buddhist called uh, Jocko Beck, Charlotte Jocko Beck, um, which is just little, little essays, but they really sort of offer that fundamental Zen perspective shift. One of the things that she's so uh, good at expressing is um this notion that um uh we sort of treat life as a problem to be solved and then we end experience endless anxiety and frustration because we can't solve being alive and actually the problem here is treating it as a problem the problem is not that you haven't found a solution the problem is that you thought there ought to be uh, a solution so those are a couple of the authors who uh, who've made an impact on me right problems in life are a feature and not a bug so yeah uh, absolutely yes you wouldn't want to have no problems uh it's good to not have the really worst kinds of problems absolutely but waiting for the time when there are no problems is a is a is a futile approach to living yeah absolutely so the last question which i've kind of we always sign off but you've kind of talked quite a bit about uh, um already today but the last question we ask before i'll ask you to sign off and tell uh these guys where they can connect with you and and uh to signpost them wherever you want them to is what makes a life worth living? It's funny because I sort of write about it and think about it and talk about it and then you sort of put it in such a direct way and I'm like, <laughs> uh, I think a good way of thinking about the answer to this question is what makes a life worth living is that you actually and I'm paraphrasing myself in the book here, but that you actually get around to doing whatever it was that you came here for. Now, I know that that sort of conjures an idea that we all have a destiny or a life purpose or that like God has an idea for us or something. I don't really mean to imply any of those things. I just mean that like, if it's useful to think in terms of like, what am I, what am I here to do? 
what what could like the world what could like the world use that I've got and I think then to to get around to doing that instead of constantly putting it off and never quite getting around to it that that is one way of understanding a, a meaningful life a life well lived I love it where can these guys connect with you and where would you like to signpost our audience to uh, well, the book 4,000 Weeks is available wherever you get books. Uh, that makes a big difference. Um, audiobooks as well. Um, uh, then uh, my website, oliverberkman.com, you can sign up for my uh, newsletter, which I call The Imperfectionist, and uh, find out other stuff there. Yeah. Amazing. We will link everything uh, below. So if anyone's listening or watching this, they can just swipe up on this episode and everything that uh i've talked with oliver about today will will be there man this was a real real treat a real privilege for me so thank you so so much for for coming on the show thank you very much i really enjoyed the conversation